Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On the Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On the Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I have a very special co-host guest this week. His name is Gene Munster. If you're a listener of OK Computer or on the tape, you know Gene because you also know that he's been doing CNBC for probably longer than I have. Gene from Loop Ventures, welcome to OK Computer. Dan, it's a pleasure. That's an understatement. Huge fan of all you do and fun to be here. You had this illustrious career at Piper Jaffray as a tech analyst, what, 21 years or so. And in 2017, you started Loop Ventures. Tell our listener a little bit what it is, because a lot of our listeners or viewers still see you in the financial media. They see you coming on Fast Money or other shows on CNBC, breaking down news the way an analyst might, a research analyst, but you're also doing principal investing and a whole host of other things. Tell us what's going on over there, Loop. So Loop is an investment platform. We have three different investment products. We have an early stage venture fund, we have an ETF, and we have a hedge fund, and we're investing in transformative tech. The way we think about it is profiting from the world is going. Very simple approach is we identify massive trends that take years to unfold, and we still have to do research to do that. That's at the core. If you're going to cut me, Dan, and I was going to bleed, it would bleed the color of research. It's something that since a young guy, I was always passionate about trying to figure out how the world works. And that's kind of manifests itself in Loop. And so we do investments in both public and private companies. I thought you were going to say, if we cut you, it would be red, like the red phone you used to don on Fast Money. It is truly remarkable. When you say that research is at the core of how you think about your business now that you're an investor also, you had this amazing ability. I remember those days for whatever reason, it was like, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft all reporting on the same Thursday or something like that. And you were monitoring all of the headlines that were coming out. You might have had two red phones, one in each ear on a couple of occasions and processing that and then getting a call from Mel being like, all right, Gene, what are they saying there? Because the stock just moved. It was truly remarkable. We were always in awe of your ability to do that. And I'm just curious, what was the major impetus to start thinking about the private markets as somebody who obviously spent 20 years speaking to public market investors, processing the information about public market companies? How did your eyes start thinking about the private markets? The biggest is it was an opportunity. I think that there are a lot of eyes on the public markets and just because of the liquidity. And so we saw an opportunity to take what we knew about the direction of some of the biggest public companies 
and start to apply that to what kind of R&D they want to do and what kind of opportunities that opens up with emerging companies. And some of these that we've invested in have been concept seed all the way up to pre-IPO. And so it was really trying to separate ourselves, our thinking from public versus private to a view that we're just looking for great companies and to be able to take our awareness of what the biggest companies are doing that and inform some of the earlier stage companies was an opportunity for us. And that's why we pursue that with Loop2 as a hybrid fund. So it invests both public and private. And if we were talking to investors, we just simply say, we're just looking for great companies and taking the blinders off of public versus private. But that's essentially the opportunity that we identified. We'll hit some of the trends and some of the companies in particular that you're really focused on towards the end of this pod. But I want to start maybe with the macro. Last week, we had Jeff Richards of GGV. And Jeff is, I think, a phenomenal uh, former operator, A, but also an investor in private markets and private tech. And he also has, I think, a very unique take on public markets. And I think a lot of what he sees in his portfolio companies, he's able to think about how that's trickling through the rest of the technology ecosystem. But he made a really interesting point last week is that a lot of their founders are not particularly focused on the macro. They really focused on putting their heads down and grinding. They have their mission. And I thought that was interesting. Now, a lot of people, if you turn it on CNBC or you're looking at finance Twitter, there's just all this debate about inflation and interest rates, corporate spending and personal income and all these things that it just seems like in my 25-year career in the business, these things are only important for a small amount of time. And it feels like we're in one of those time periods. So let's talk about the macro a little bit, because I've seen some things from the public markets. And I know that we talked about it a few weeks ago when Snap came out and pre-announced and the things that they blamed their pre-announcement just weeks after they had just officially guided. Those are the sorts of things that get my antennas up. When Microsoft, which just gave guidance in late April or early May comes out and their last negative pre-announcement was in the throes of the pandemic. And before that, it was probably during the financial crisis. Okay. So when a company like Microsoft, one of the largest in the world does that, we pay attention, even if, and you and I are probably in agreement, we're like, nah, they didn't really need to pre-announce that quarter, not for the reasons that they said. I'm just curious how you're thinking about this top down from the largest public tech companies. Top down, we've looked at 20 of them after they reported their March quarter and the commentary related to the June quarter. And at the time, this is a couple of weeks ago, 11 of the 20 had negative commentary about the June quarter. It's always about looking forward, of course, when you think about whether it's public or private companies. So from top down, we started to see what I would describe as the tip of the iceberg. We probably went a little bit under the ocean there, but this idea of starting to see this fracturing. So that was one piece. Since that, we've had the Microsoft update, which, as you mentioned, we can debate whether or not they needed to say anything. We have Tesla's commentary. If we put those two, shift those two from the positive outlook on the June quarter to the negative, we get 13 of the 20 of the biggest tech companies have had some cautionary commentary regarding June. And I would also mention that there's some probably gamification, some hedging that some of these management teams are doing when they're talking about the June quarter. They're reading the headlines too. But I do think it's representative of a shift in terms of some of the consumer behavior. And so when I think about the biggest companies, I think that we're going to see in the June quarter, I think that's the quarter of reckoning. And I think that September could be even more ugly. But when I think of reckoning, I think that's the moment when investors just say, this is bigger than what we had thought. And so I'm bracing. Our fund is at 60% in cash. 
going into this. And just to finish the thought, I think that typically these issues don't correct themselves within a quarter. And so that's the highest level I think that we should brace ourselves. One commentary regarding public and private and ability just to keep your heads down. I love that, finding where the world's going and just sticking with it. That's really powerful. But I don't think it's practical. And the reason why is that when you think about making investments, if you do have these vortexes down, what we've seen in some of tech, especially emerging tech in the last six months, I think that you have to be aware of this. We haven't seen that large of a course correction in the private market. So when I think about tech and think about the environment more broadly, I still think you should be bracing for what I think is still a step down. And I think on the private market side too, I think that there still hasn't been a course correction there. I think that's where you're going to see more of that movement in the next, call it two to six months. I want to hit Target. So it's Tuesday. We're into the close here. This morning, Target warned for their second time in three weeks. And I was really taken aback, and I'm sure you were too. You weren't called up on the red phone to comment on Target on CNBC, but we were certainly talking about it because Brian Cornell, the CEO of that company, was on the set of Squawk Box the morning in May that the stock was down 25% because of that guidance. And he had every opportunity to really guide further. So the fact that he's out two and a half weeks later, guiding lower, but then speaking more optimistically about the back half of the year. Gene, you've been around a long time. I've been around a long time. We remember what second half loaded quarter or guidance looks like here. It's not great commentary. It usually comes down further. And I'm just curious, when you were seeing these headlines over the last few weeks, out of first out of Amazon, then Walmart, and then Target, were you starting to get a sense of a consumer shift? And again, in the backdrop is inflation, food inflation, energy inflation. And we know that our consumer, 70% or more of our economy, at some point, the Fed and the mechanism of their battling inflation by raising interest rates and then effectively trying this experiment of QT, rolling off their balance sheet, it takes, what, six, nine, 12 months to really work itself in the economy. So you used the expression before, tip of the iceberg, I think we're just getting started here. And again, I'm not talking about a deep, deep recession. I'm talking about adjusting for the ills of $4 trillion of monetary and fiscal stimulus over the last couple of years, which for the most part, I get it. I got it in 2020. I didn't really get it in 2021. And here we are in mid-2022, and we're still haven't really fully begun to raise interest rates to normalize levels or reduce the size of the Fed's balance sheet. I agree. And maybe just to put a finer point on the consumer side and what I'm thinking when I see these updates from companies, it has moved from a theory that eventually we knew late last year, our fund, we got ran over in the back half of the year. We were negative since the middle of last year and the market just went straight up and we were flat. And that was a difficult period for us as we kind of thought about all these things in theory. And now we're starting to go from theory into practice. And all these data points, I'm actually really encouraged when I see commentary from Target here talking about inventory levels going up, mentioned just how often I'm just soaking up data points around me. I still have a gas pickup and I'm filling it up the other day and I see an ad for Bobcats. And I thought, I thought these things were on back order forever. What are they advertising for? And I talked to a friend who is in a direct-to-consumer furniture business and they're saying that the price that they're paying for cargo 40 by something, I forget what the standard measurement is from China to the US was 8,000 before the pandemic. It spiked to 28,000. A month ago, it was 25,000. Now it's 15,000. 
And I hear commentary like that. I look at the commentary from Target and all these other vendors, Snap. Actually, I'm really encouraged because I think part of healing what is, I think, some rifts in all of our ability to keep up with inflation, I think part of healing that is starting to see some improvements in inventory levels and some of the supply chain. And I think we are starting to see some of that. So we're going to see more probably negative commentary out. But I see this as essentially the market and the economy is taking some much needed medicine. And a final thought just on this back half of the year, agree that when companies start talking about back end loading the year, might as well discount that by a healthy margin because it's probably not going to happen. But I think what will happen, and this is where I run the risk of being considerably wrong here, but I think what this is going to course correct through this year create some easy comps around from Target all the way up to Google and Microsoft and Apple, easy comps in 2022, easier comps, then I think that by the end of this year and investors start thinking about 2023, I think it's going to be more optimistic. It's interesting, the point about inventories. And again, you and I have been following technology long enough and we've seen these different supply demand cycles. And we know that there's a lot of double ordering that goes on. And you think about the semi-space and you think about how the explosion in use cases for chips, right? Across all different sorts of products here. And we know that there was just heavily restrained supply here because China was locked down or deglobalization or the tariffs or whatever it is. This has been going on for years now, right? And so I just worry that we're starting to see a retailer of a lot of plastic junk and apparel and food talk about heavy inventory levels and the need to discount and then thus cancellation. So that shipping per container rate is going back to 8,000. Exactly. Yes, it is. So the point that I would make is that in my 25 years in the biz, I've never seen any major trend not come back to the mean and then overshoot to some point. And I know that you're a deep thinker as it relates to technology and you're thinking about what's going to happen over the next 10, 20 years. You're like one of the sci-fi tech investors, if you will. And just think we know how deflationary all of this stuff is in a way. Yeah, Amazon overbuilt their logistics in their warehouse and they overhired and that hurts right now. But we know that in a few years, they're going to need that capacity again. So it's going to hurt their numbers now. And we'll get into Amazon too, but I guess my point is just like we overshot to the upside, the thing that I fear for 2022 is that we're likely to overshoot to the downside a little bit too. So you really want to be careful about being too early. And I want to make one last point, what you said, I love your honesty and your transparency about 2021. You said you got run over on some stuff that you thought was down enough, right? You didn't think the macro was going to get much worse. You didn't think that maybe multiples were going to get compressed. This is in the public markets, right? Well, the lesson of the post-dot-com bubble and the lesson, for me at least, the financial crisis is that things that go down 50 60% can get cut in half again, even if they're decent stories looking out five years. And so sometimes it's really hard to get the near term right. The pendulum aspect is important. And I think that in this environment where this plays out is that you don't just look for buying companies at fair valuations and different investors get to fair valuation in a different way, you really need to look for bargains. And I think bargains are when it's painful to buy companies because you're so scared about buying them. That's when you know you're probably at a bargain. We haven't had the bargain price. And if I can maybe take that theme around waiting for the bargain 
And just to go a little bit of a step further is what keeps me up at night is waiting for these bargains and being 60% in cash. This is a hard conversation with our LPs if we get this wrong. If we've been sitting in cash and the market comes off on some of these that are down 60%, like you said, and we don't invest, that's a hard conversation if the market springs back 30% and we missed a massive opportunity. I feel that despite this being, I think, consensus that we're going to go through a difficult time, I think being consensus here is right. I think that we're still going to see a pull down and specifically advocate for people just waiting for these great bargains. And we can talk about how we define a bargain, but ultimately, I think we're going to get there. I definitely want to do that. But it's interesting that you mentioned the consensus and me talking to a lot of my friends in the hedge fund business or people who are on the sell side who talk to the hedge funds, the smart money, if you will, the consensus among the buy side is definitely for a continued difficult 2022. The issue that I have are most of the strategists and most of the economists. And I know that you wait around for your hits on fast money. You probably heard me say it like 10 times over the last few months is that I was staring at Apple. You know, it had that move from 150 to 180 in the second half of March here. And I'm still looking at a stock that's trading 27 times earnings that expected EPS growth of eight or 9% and hasn't budged. And so then on the way back from 180 to 150, The stock comes in 20%, yet the earnings estimates have not come in, not one bit, given the very difficult macro environment. So here we are back at that 150 level. We're starting to get FX warnings from Microsoft. We're starting to get, in my opinion, the next shoe to drop. And again, I just mentioned Jeff Richards, who was on last week. One of the things that he said, we hadn't heard from Microsoft or Salesforce or some of the other companies that he's tracking about decreased demand. Well, that's coming. There's no way that you can put together this mosaic of the macro that we're just talking about and not see decreased demand. We're already starting to see the notes on job cuts or slowing of hiring. That's going to mean less competition for jobs, lower wages. And now we're seeing all of the rationalization of all these unprofitable private companies that are going to be laying off people going out of business. And what happened in the post.com period, they stopped buying Sun Service. They stopped buying banner ads on Yahoo. They stopped buying excess cloud capacity and Exodus communications. And the list went on and on and on. And they started firing people. That's when demand across the board, first consumer demand, but then corporate stopped spending on those sorts of things. So to me, that has to kind of be around the corner unless I'm totally wrong and that this time is totally different that the Fed can raise interest rates into the sort of environment that we're in and we're not going to see some sort of decreased activity across the board. All of that with the backdrop that Europe is most certainly going to be in a recession at some point in 2022. And I don't know if you've checked this out yet, but Q1 GDP here in the US was lower. And right now, the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker now is a little under 1%. Okay, so we're going to hit the recession marker, it sounds like. I mean, we could, and it would be a big surprise to all those strategists and all of those economists who are saying not a chance in 2022. I want to talk about Apple and the broader market and some of the big tech that hasn't fallen. Just hold that thought for a second, but I just want to make sure that I'm tracking on your view of consensus because near term, that's not what both of us are great at is consensus. It doesn't matter longer term, but I'm just curious, do you feel that the consensus is neutral, positive, negative? How would you describe if we look at On the investor side, I think it's really negative. Like for instance, Tom Lee of Fundstrat, he does a lot of great work. And I think that he's really bullish. And I think that every other day in his note that I read on FS Insight is that investor sentiment, he really tracks that. And he thinks that's really bullish. 
Because it's so bad, it's bullish. Yeah, it's so bad that it's bullish. And so I take the opposite side because I had a front row seat for the dot-com implosion. A front row seat. I was working at Merrill Lynch during the financial crisis. A derivatives desk there trading. And it's like, okay, but every once in a while, it seems like every eight to 10 years, all of those things that you think about consensus market thinking, throw out the window because it's so bad, it's good or something like that. And look at how the market cratered in May when the AAII, those numbers had been at 20-year lows or whatever. So my point is, it could happen. We could be at a huge sea change. I want to mention one thing. So you just mentioned Apple, and I'm going to give you, I know I've been rattling on here a little bit. You've been the axe in Apple for as long as I can remember. And I can't ever remember you ever downgrading the stock. And so when I look at somebody, let's say, say like you've always had a buy in the stock and you've always articulated a bullish outlook. Well, you've been right. If you just look at the 20 year arc of this company, just, you know, at the hedge fund I was at 20 years ago, I remember selling the stock at $13 because they were supposedly, there was a headline that they were going to buy Vivendi or something. Do you remember that in 2002 or three? Now, granted, I'm sure I got back in at some point, but my point is, is that you've had the vision of this company correct, what they were doing with music and what they were doing with the app store and what they were doing with handhelds and what they went into the smartphone. And then iPads was this amazing thing. And then the laptop was supposedly dead, but then they ended up taking tons of market share. Oh, and by the way, desktops were dead. And I don't know about you, but I got a bunch of iMacs all over my office and my home and this and that, whatever. So you've had the whole thing correct. So talk to me what it's been like, because when you were on the sell side, you had to deal with all the cynical buy-siders who wanted to always short Apple because it was a consensus long. What was that like for 10 years of your career, having to defend a steadfast bullish view on Apple? And you've been right. You lose credibility with people. I think the toughest part is that people think, investors think you're just mailing it in every day. Of course, I'm going to be positive on Apple. That's what I do. And that's not how we approach it. When you were talking about before about the impact on spending and the impact of the recession and Apple and the estimate revisions, Doug Clinton, who's one of the partners at Loop and I, we debate around Apple and the impact and what they're going to see. And so I want to get it right on the way up. I want to get them right on the way down. So I think that the answer is that I just want to be right. And I know I'm going to be wrong, but I want to stay out of religion of companies. I want to be able to say negative things about Apple and say negative things about all the big tech and positive things about them when it's due. So that's what do I think about over the years is just that idea that I want to be right. I want to get this right. I'm 51. I had an experience maybe 15 years ago it's probably around 2010, something like that. I'd done love field work and done a lot of meeting with buy side investors. And I'm going to not name the investor, but was meeting with him and his team. And we were talking about Apple and he was asking how the quarter is going. And I was saying, this is good. It's a great company to own. This is going to be a good quarter, good outlook. And he got up, didn't say anything, got up and walked out of the meeting. Never had that happen before. And then his two lieutenants were there and I didn't even know what to say. And one of them spoke up and said, I think he left because you don't get it. And whether you're saying everything is great with Apple today, but just wait three months and six months and see what happens. And it turns out that Apple, they were beating numbers aggressively and they went through a period where they weren't beating them as aggressively and the stock came down. And basically I wasn't getting the joke. And when I think about that lesson, I think a lot about it now is that Apple's business right now, I think it's doing fine. But if there is a recession, 
Apple's going to get hit. Tesla's going to get hit. All the stocks, they're all going to come down some level. And I want to try to look through that and think about where they're going. We can talk specifically about Apple longer term, but there is no force field that you can put around any company if the macro is starting to soften. And I think that it's just healthy for investors just to brace for that, to take that moment of, yes, things are good now, but let's just be ready for things to kind of soften. And it's okay if it trades off a little bit here. I'm still a believer in Apple long-term. I think it can go much higher, but I think that if I'm right on the macro over the next three months, probably everything is going down. For years on our show on Fast Money, there was just generally a universal bullish bent towards Apple. Guy, definitely not, and me not. But for me, it wasn't that I was short Apple or thought it was a bad long. One of the jobs that I think is really important, and again, you've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of investors through your course of your career here. When you're on TV, you're speaking to tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. It's really important to actually tease out how things could go wrong. So if you have a panel of people looking at an Apple quarter and everyone's highlighting all the great things, and I think you and I are saying the same thing. I've noticed, though, you as an investor now, not you as competing for II rankings on the sell side, and regulation. Think about it. You have printed estimates. You have a printed price target when you're on the sell side, all those sorts of things. You can't diverge too much from that thesis that you've put in paper. Now, as an investor, you can say whatever the hell you want. So I find that nuance really important. And again, I think sell side and their ability to really take the pulse of their client base is important and take the pulse of the companies and access to them and everything like that. But I've really enjoyed your commentary since you started Loot Ventures. I know the difficulty of being on the sell side. Let's talk about Apple for a second because they had their Worldwide Developers Conference. I know you were out there yesterday. And again, you stopped probably being really interesting maybe six or seven years ago. After they had introduced the watch and then maybe AirPods and then some stuff on the services side. And I'm sure that you could go into a lot of detail about some of the things that you were really excited about on the hardware front. I think their hardware is amazing. I got tons of it. I worry that there was a bit of a pull forward over the last couple of years, the work from home, a whole host of things, school from home. I bought new hardware for all of my kids and me and my office and this and that, whatever. At some point, people are like, ah, we don't need that shiny new thing every year. That's happened with the iPhone. My iPhone 12 is the first iPhone I've ever had that I've not upgraded every year. So I'm just curious what you're thinking about, because I think you're probably focused beyond the hardware that we know about. Service is not growing the way it was five years ago and probably never will, and really is dependent on that installed base growing. So I'm just curious what excites you over the next few years about Apple, let's say right here where it is at 150 bucks, trading about 24 times this year, 22 and a half times next. What excites you that this thing could experience multiple expansion again? It's going to have to be on the heels of a whole host of new products, I assume. What excites me is how it's just become the fabric of our hardware and software. And I think that if you take the event yesterday and you scramble through all the announcements, I think you missed the big picture. And the big picture is that they have products that we rely on and they continue to find ways to make them better and continue to find ways to get us to pay for some of these, whether it's new iterations of Apple Pay with Tap and Pay, 
whether it's new photo cloud storage for family, whether it is something new within CarPlay. I think that they just keep inching along. But my view that this is a much bigger company isn't based on that. They need to keep doing that. And that's a really hard thing to do. They do it better than I think anybody. It's a valuable asset. And consumers just think, hey, these products work really well and I got a lot of them. And it's true. There's going to be fluctuations in terms of when those demand curves go. You just bought a bunch of Mac equipment over the past couple of years. Now you might not buy any, then you're going to be buying them again, but you're probably not going to switch to a PC. And they just raised price. And so they got some levers to pull there. So biggest picture is the fabric of integrated hardware and software. That's a big deal. They're the only company in the world that does it. But for me to be right on this longer term, I got to get the product categories right. And when I think about what was said yesterday, I think related to CarPlay and what's going on there, and I'm not trying to skip over the near term. I think the near term, there's probably more slight downside to all tech companies in the near term, but I'm just thinking through to 23 and beyond is I think what they're doing in CarPlay is a big deal. So just a quick update is that they're essentially taking CarPlay from the center console to an entire instrument console. So it's going from just doing music essentially in maps to doing root functionality, which is basically controlling, actually controlling parts of the car, the windshield wiper, your air conditioning, looking at the speed of your car. That's a new step. That's a big deal. And they're making the display kind of across the whole instrument panel. What surprised me is the number of car manufacturers. They're all bigger brands, but I think it was like 12 or 14 that have already signed up to do this bigger implementation. I think what it speaks to is a desire, I think, a recognition from traditional car makers that there needs to be still more infusion of tech into cars. I mean, it's pretty obvious. And I think there's an opportunity. And so to finish the thought on Apple is, how does this go? I I agree with you that you have to get into some new exciting product categories. WWDC is important. What happens is important, but it doesn't have that same bang effect as it does when they announce an iPhone or an iPad or the watch. And I think for the stock really to break out, investors need to get a sense that they're going to do something big, whether it's an automotive or AR and health and wellness. And of course, I have to keep reminding people about the mistakes that I've made around predicting product categories before, especially with the TV. And the concept is because Apple's working on a product doesn't mean it's going to see the light of day. We're working on an actual car, a physical car. We know that. That's not proprietary Gene Munster stuff. That's just known. That's out there. There are people that are doing that. The question is, are these products, is the AR headset going to see the light of day? Are health and wellness more class two features on Apple Watch, for example? Are they going to power more clinical uses of Apple Watch? Is that actually going to happen? So I think it will. And that's what bullishness is based on. Pre-pandemic, their margins were 38% and gross margins now are expected to be 43%. So it's really hard to take a look at what they've done over the last few years and say that integration that you're talking about between software and hardware, that is paying off. You used to probably recite all the stats about what percentage of the total margin of the smartphone business that Apple had. It was like 90% or something like that. And we've talked about this again. ASPs are not really a thing for consumers anymore because if you're buying it on the Apple iPhone, listen, this is probably the most bullish anyone's ever heard me be about Apple right now, but you're not thinking about it anymore. You're thinking about it. And I know you probably use this expression, this whole Apple Prime sort of thing. That's how you get these margins continuing to eke up and really be able to justify a 25 PE, if you will, especially at the size of this sort of company. So I get it. Let me ask you this though. And this 
this is one you don't hear much of, but what do you think about succession? I mean, Tim Cook's been there for 10 years. And if you think about really what he's done with the company and the way that the revenue base is built, what we just talked about, profitability in the book that Isaacson wrote about jobs from, I think it was 2011 or so, he said he's not a product guy. Well, they've done pretty well on the product front. I'm just curious at some point, who's next? Because it doesn't seem like they have a particularly deep bench as it relates to innovation. They have a lot of people who have overseen the build out of smartphones or the software integration, that sort of thing. I'm just curious if this is a risk to this company going forward. When Sheryl Sandberg announced that she's moving on from Facebook. That was maybe the second thought that came to my mind was what's going to happen with Tim Cook. He's 61 now and there's only so many trips around the sun. And I think the other part about Tim Cook is just, he's like just a genuinely good person. I would say he's a listener. And you mentioned I was at the event. I just stood back and watched when he came into a room and this energy that just swamped him. It was just overwhelming because he's not a very public kind of guy, but yet he wears the mantle. He carries it well. And I think about that eventually he's not going to do it forever. So what is next? It's probably an internal person. It's probably in the next five years. It's most likely Jeff Williams. I think that he's been groomed up. He's more like Tim Cook than Steve Jobs. And that's pretty easy to say because very few people like Steve Jobs. And is it going to be a setback for investors? Yes, but it won't be as big of a concern as when Tim Cook took over. That was the glory days are done. He's not a man of innovation. Yes, he can keep trains on track, but you need a lot more to be competitive in tech. And I think that Cook's success has laid the groundwork, I think, for Williams' success. One last thing on Apple here, and what I think is an existential risk to their growth would be China and on multiple fronts. They rely on that supply chain. They rely on manufacturing, and they're really hoping that that emerging middle class is still going to like their shiny products there. And so when you think about deglobalization, you think of the tariff war, you think of Tim Cook's ability. This is why, in hindsight, the books that are going to be written about Tim Cook, his ability to grow this revenue base from 100 to 400 hundred billion or whatever during his tenure. It might have even been lower than a hundred and do so in this increasingly hostile situation between us and China, where so many of his big US multinational tech peers are not allowed to do business in there. I actually think it runs, there's a huge risk here that we see some nationalism as it relates to products, that we see increased geopolitical tensions that could, maybe not this year, maybe not next, but something with Taiwan that would really screw up the global supply chain as it relates to semis and other parts, and then obviously manufacturing. And if you look at the iPhone, I think it's easily three or four in market share domestically in China. I just think there's a lot of potential pitfalls, and I don't see the geopolitical stuff getting better before it gets much worse. It's the thing that keeps me up at night being positive on Apple. I suspect it keeps Tim Cook up at night. If Apple runs into some major issues in the next five years, it's not going to be about competition. It's going to be about something going awry in China and Taiwan. And it comes back to strategic ambiguity. The relationship between China and Taiwan is a fascinating topic. The one-liner is that Taiwan is not able to say they're independent, but they act independently. We know how much production of advanced chips come from Taiwan. It is a lot. So the supply chain impact, there's the geopolitical risk is real. 
Apple is slowly diversifying away from that. They're doing more in Malaysia and Vietnam. They've announced an increase in the amount that they're investing in the U.S. I think they moved it from $380 billion over the next five years to $420 billion. How they account for that, I don't know. But those are really big numbers, $400 billion. To put it in a perspective is that it costs about $15 billion to build an advanced fab. Intel is building or TSCMC is building the U.S. And so you can do a lot with that kind of money. But of course, it takes time. And so I am following those tea leaves very closely about what's going on between China and Taiwan. And the U.S. did something that was, I think, smart, strategic. Recently, they reminded China, if you invade Taiwan, we are going to step in. And then two days later, that is the stick. The U.S. comes back and says, we want to do more to try to ease some of the tariffs between the U.S. and China. And I felt like that was a good balance because what we're seeing with what's happened with Russia and Ukraine and oil and the impact on the whole supply chain, if something would go negative between China and Taiwan, it would make the whole oil conversation look elementary compared to what the impact of the semiconductors. So they can't build fast enough to get away from China. Yeah. The only thing I would say is that the Chinese have a lot more leverage there because they have the cheap manufacturing and they also have the hundreds of billions, if not maybe trillions over the last 50 years of invested capital in that supply chain in the region. And they could really screw things up if they meant to do so. I want to hit a bunch of things because I definitely want to get to the loop portfolio and some of your big trends here, but I want to hit a few more things in the public markets. And I want to get to some things that you think might be values, as you just mentioned here. Real quickly, last night on Fast Money, we were talking about maybe the Chinese ending their investigation in DD, which could signal letting their tech champions do a little bit more than what they have been over the last couple of years. And we're talking about it. And I said to the desk, I'm like, why would you buy Alibaba even down 70% knowing the overhang that the government has there when you could buy an Amazon that had basically just been cut in half over the last year or so? So let's quickly talk about succession. Let's talk about Andrew Jazzy. We know that their head of retail just left. We know that they had disappointing retail numbers. It seems like there was some mis-execution there. What is your thought on Amazon here? It just split 20 for one. So all of a sudden it's a nice little stock at $123. I'm just curious thoughts here i have to assume that jazzy's the guy that has been doing the unthinkable with aws for over a decade when everybody were naysayers for what the first probably half of that time thinking it was a bit of a foray what do you think about jazzy what do you think about the stock down 30 some percent from its highs what do you think about some of the misexecution and are you bullish on amazon we are bullish on amazon loop recently bought some amazon a few weeks ago we think about this in terms of leaning into a stock. We have that negative macro view, so we're trying to manage those two. But I think Jesse is the right person. He's the Tim Cook example that's been given. I think that that is appropriate. And when I think about the balance between investing in China versus investing in the U.S., I think that at this point, investing in China tech it is a lot of headache. And I would agree with that view. Just focus on the domestic investment piece and Obviously, Amazon does more than just the US. And one kind of final thought, what got us over the top in terms of investing in Amazon? When we think about valuation, we had something called the reverse DCF, where we basically try to look at the price and factor in what is priced in in terms of growth. And essentially, what's priced in right now is for AWS to decelerate from call it 40 to 30% over the next five years, for the advertising business to slow down from call it 30% to 25%, and for the retail business, which is almost 85% of the sales, 
for that to be flat over the next five years. And I think that that is conservative. I could see retail be down in the next year because of all the things that we talked about, the macro. But I think ultimately, I'm optimistic. We're still not at full position, but optimistic about where Amazon can go. A stock like this that everyone's wanted to own since it bottomed out in 2002 and you feel like you missed your shot, it just got basically cut in half. And so the idea of laying into that a little by little makes some sense, especially as we know the news on the macro front is going to get worse before it gets better. Let's talk about Snap, unusual value. You talked about not waiting until something's too much of a bargain. Here's a company that's supposed to grow sales 30% a year for the next three years or so. We know that on a gap basis, unprecedented profitable when it was trading above 10 times sales not too long ago, a few months ago. A lot of people thought that was a bit fat here, but here we are now. The thing is corrected massively. They've come out and two disappointing guides in basically two months or so. Here it's trading about five times sales, three and a half times next, two and a half times. Are we getting to a value category? Because here's a 20 five billion dollar market cap company elon's trying to pay and we're going to get to elon elon's trying to pay 43 and a half billion for twitter i think you and i would both agree that snap and their ability to evolve their products and evan spiegel as a ceo and some of the other execs that they have there and their roadmap especially the stuff that you love and ar and vr and everything like that it just seems out of whack snap versus twitter right now do you want to speak about snap in particular do you agree that this is probably in very near value territory. Agree. I think that if I had to pick between Twitter and Snap, I would take Snap over Twitter. I think the innovation piece around that, I think Twitter has some damage that's being done to it right now. I love what, as you said, what Snap is kind of doing as a camera first, the lens first, the AR first. And so I would think of this as a one, two-year trade. I think that what Facebook ultimately wants to do around the metaverse and augmented reality and the size of their network, I think is a competitive headwind there. But I think that this is more of that one-year trading. I think that Snap is going to do well. All right. You and I have agreed on a lot. We're going to disagree on something in one second here. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Let's first talk about Twitter, though. Given what Snap just reported, the Q2 must be a disaster over at Twitter. When you think about just what the morale must be like with a couple high-level departures, Prague, maybe he's done a good job, maybe he hasn't. The board, I think, has done a horrible job in general. I think Jack did the brand and the legacy of Twitter a massive disservice, to be very frank. I think he will be looked upon not too favorably. And again, this is not the first time that I think Twitter was happy to see him gone. Let's be frank. 
So my question to you is, does Elon really want to buy Twitter? He's doing immeasurable damage, I think, to the brand, to the user base, because I think he's basically bifurcated it. There's a whole host of people that if he buys it, they're out. There's a whole host of people that might come back that left for probably good reasons. And it just seems like a big sideshow. I'm just curious to see how you think this ends. And I think you and I have been in agreement on the show over the last month or so that this is probably given that snap guidance. This has probably got a two handle on it if Elon's not around right now. First topic is, does Elon want to buy Twitter? I think he still does. I think that there's still a 50-50 chance that it ultimately happens. The reason is that he feels strongly about free speech, and he's a principles person. He feels strong about free speech. Twitter's the best example of to pursue that. Maybe a follow-up thought is, is he willing to pay $54 for Twitter? I think the answer is a resounding no. I think that if it does happen, it will be in the 40s. And if it doesn't happen, I think the stock goes to 25. I still believe that some investors, despite the recent news about the AG in Texas and this rift that's happening, I still believe there are some investors who still think that this is going to happen. You wait the outcomes here. It's one just to stay on the sidelines on. And it has been quite a remarkable reminder about how fast things can change. Twitter had a good brand and one person with 93 million ironic Twitter users has been able to destroy and create a civil war within the Twitter user base. Can I tell you something? I think he's so vain. I think this is about that. I think he loves the fact that he opens Twitter every morning. It's the last thing he does before he goes to bed at night, despite all his 69 jokes and 420. And it's the first thing he does in the morning. And I think he loves to see that when he tweets, he's trending. And every day. And you know what that reminds me of? You remember what that reminds me of. And that guy's no longer on Twitter. This is not going to end well for him. I'm just telling you that. This is not going to end well for him. It's not going to end well for Twitter. And that is just what it is. Let me ask you this, Dan. Does he have ultimately political aspiration? We have a advisor who has been at some of the highest levels of politics and they work so hard. I thought working in the corporate world or investing world was difficult. Politicians take it to a whole new level. That said, I think there is kind of an ego piece that lines up and I've been thinking more about that in the last day. What do you think? Well, it would be president or nothing, right? Would Cheryl run for president? Would that be kind of a fun not a ticket, but a, a face-off. We talked about it last week on the pod. I think her end game in 16 was to go work in the Clinton White House. And I think because of the criticism that she took based on what they did or didn't do to safeguard their platform, she was toast. I think she's toast politically. And I could see Elon doing something Cuban-esque where he flirts with it a little bit and really tries to really solidify this following. It's like one thing to have an email list, another thing to have a social following. It's another thing to really activate them. One way to do that would be political. So again, I think that if he were to throw his hat in the ring, he has to leave Tesla, which maybe he wants to do. He's been selling a lot of stock, obviously. And so he can't run that company. You tell me. So let's, this is where you and I are going to, this is going to get a little punchy here, okay? Because I think what's happened with the Texas AG, which has been indicted. This guy has been indicted for securities fraud. Elon moves their operations to Austin. They're now probably, again, one of the biggest employers and taxpayers and all that sort of stuff and a really important. And it's also for this really red governor and attorney general. This is an important get. So this is an EV company. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm sure you've done some good survey work. I don't think a lot of deep red Republicans who don't believe in climate change are buying electric vehicles. Okay. So this works for them. They like 
like having it there. And so this guy launches an investigation in Twitter of the bots. This is the AG. I mean, who's funding this guy's campaign? As long as he is in office, he's not going to be indicted. And I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory. I think that's the tip of the iceberg. So I'm just curious, how do you think this all works out, Gene, for Tesla? You're a Tesla shareholder. You must kind of be incensed. If you think the company's executing as well as they are, if you think they're doing the stuff behind the scenes with self-driving the way that most people don't think they are, is this sideshow really helpful if you're a Tesla shareholder? No, it's not. And I think that at the most basic level, it falls into the category of the sharper side of, of Elon and investors have generally grown accustomed to it. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be something to be reckoned with and I believe that Tesla's in a, a good spot. I think there are some similarities between when Tim Cook took over Apple and the roadmap that's in place. I think Tesla's roadmap is largely in place, but I think that everything that's gone on with Twitter, all of the other theories around what's going on with the AG, it all ends up being distraction, I think, to what Elon is really great at, which is He's finding out and just dreaming up where the universe is going, not even the world. So yes, it's a distraction. How do you factor that into share price? I don't know. And I think that you can put yourself in circles looking at pattern recognition. And usually he kind of goes in these crazy spurts and then it cools down and then it kind of picks up again. And who knows if that's going to happen again. But I think in general... If Elon was going to do something else, whether it's SpaceX or politics or the boring company, do less with Tesla, it's negative for Tesla shares in the near term. I'm a believer in Tesla longer term. I just want these headline cycles to slow down because the stock's probably not going to pick up itself until investors have some clarity about what Elon's direction ultimately is. Yeah, well, I have no position. The one thing I'll say is I think it goes much lower. And I think it goes much lower for one main reason is that since I've been in the business, Every mania corrects itself. And not only does it correct itself, it overcorrects itself. And the cult of personality around him, it just seems unsustainable given this new world order that we are in on so many different levels. And all the stuff that I said about China and Apple, if Tim Cook stays up at night worried about it, if you as an investor do an Apple, then Tesla is also, because if they can't sell cars in China, then this thing's toast because I got to tell you, I look at the Porsche Taycan fully electric, which costs the same amount as the Plaid. You give me the choice. I know what I'm buying. And I'll tell you this though, that yeah, right now the killer app for Tesla is this supercharger infrastructure that's built out. And you could tell me, well, it'll take everyone else five to 10 years to do that. I don't know what it is or whatever. And I totally get that. I had a fully electric. I bought one of those Ford Mustang Mach-E's last year and I turned it in after nine months because living in New York City and trying to get anywhere further than 200 miles, it was a bit of a disaster. Now I'm back with an ice. I'm filling up like you at the pump at $8 a gallon. It sucks. But again, I just think that this mania, it is a meme stock. It is a mania. It's a cult around him. And I think his alt-right turn, and I'm calling it an alt-right turn, I think it is not attractive to the core Tesla buyer here. And if it continues to go down this route, I think you're going to see people turning in their Tesla keys for a lot of really, really great alternatives for the first time in a long time. I would like to give you final word on the topic. So I'm going to take a minute and then I want to give you final word. Loop is not an investor in Tesla. The reason is that we feel that if the market is going to come in, that the 
higher multiple stocks, especially something like Tesla, has more downside risk. There's risk around Elon and him getting some direction about where he wants to go that makes us uncomfortable. The long term, I'm still optimistic on. And the one piece, I agree that his turn towards the right, I'm an independent, his turn towards the right is going to create more waves and more friction with potential buyers. I agree with that. The piece that I'm looking at is, and this is where we probably are going to disagree, is I think that the game is not about features on your EV. I think what is in play here is a manufacturing. And I understand that Tesla talks about this as a competitive advantage, but you look at what traditional car companies are doing that are starting to move to EVs about what their manufacturing process is like. And you look at what Tesla just built in Berlin and Austin. It is, I think, uh, pick the adjective, the analogy is a, a step function, a light year difference. And that to me is the catch 22 that traditional auto is in. And this is why I think that Tesla survives some of these very potent near-term issues around Elon and his behavior. And I think that at the end of the day, I believe Tesla is going to continue to build the most profitable, most affordable electric car and all cars will be electric. Even people who don't believe in global warming like electric cars because they don't have to go to the gas station anymore. And so I think that this will survive. I think that there is more downside risk in the near term to Tesla than most any other tech company. But long term, I think that they're going to build something that is going to be much bigger than it is today. I think that's all fair. I think that that long-term vision for the company and what it grows into probably doesn't include Elon Musk. There was a time where he owned, in the not-so-recent past, 25% of the stock. Now he owns 16, and that probably continues to go lower. And the one thing that I would just say for Tesla shareholders, if he does buy the company and he has to commit $33 billion of equity, the margin loan on that as the stock goes lower is a real problem. I actually think Tesla shareholders bear the brunt of that. If the people making the loans start liquidating the stock, can you imagine what could happen? The stock has a 700 plus billion dollar market cap. So to me, I just think that Tesla shareholders are bearing a whole host of risks that has nothing to do with Tesla's core business. And that's it. All right. I'd love to hear about the Loop portfolio. I saw one of your portfolio companies, Masterworks, which is also the CEO founder of that company. Scott Lynn is a friend of mine. He's also a sponsor of this podcast. I saw that in there. Talk to me about some of the big trends, some of the things that really excite you about investing in founders that aren't Tim Cook and Andy Jazzy and all those sorts of guys. What are some of the things that really excite you about the Lou private portfolio? Masterworks has done an amazing job of taking high class. I don't know a lot about art, but blue chip artwork from artists that we all know and making it so it's investable for everybody, kind of fractionalizing that. I think that that is an exciting company. Another company in our private portfolio is Levels. They're taking blood glucose monitoring. It's typically been focused on people who are diabetic and making it so it's something that people who are not diabetic would check every so often and really allowing you to optimize the food that you eat and really kind of shift the equation from just do I feel good right now to changing your diet to a point where you feel better than you even realized because our health progresses so slowly. That would be another company. And the third one I would mention is a company called Peak. And this is a company that gives testosterone to men. It doesn't sound like a very exciting business. This is not for high school football players who want to get a college scholarship. 
It is embarrassing for guys who are low on testosterone to get treated for it. They found a way to do it through a teledoc and they basically have, because some of the changes with the pandemic and moving drugs through the mail, they're able to do that. But this is an example of a company that I think has grabbed a niche around this underserved market. One of the inspirations is there was another company, I'm forgetting the name of it, but they basically provided therapeutics and drugs to people who had gone through gender changes. And it was a multi-billion dollar company that you'd never heard of, but this super passionate base. And I think Peak has an opportunity to be one of those types of companies. So it seems like health tech is something you really focused on. Yeah, we like health tech. We're also doing some things in brain tech. We're invested in Paradromics. Paradromics is the biggest competitor to Elon Musk, Neuralink. Neuralink gets all the attention. I like that. You're investing in companies that are competing with Elon Musk. Gene, I am learning volumes about what's going on over there at Loop. You've been so generous with your time. We could have gone on forever. I would love to have you back and have you on with Rick Heitzman of First Mark. He's one of my co-hosts here, and we could really dig deep into some of these bigger trends that you're focused on. I know we went deep on the things that I love, the Amazon, the Apple, the Twitter, and all that stuff. I really appreciate you joining us here on OK Computer, man. Right back at you, Dan. Highlight of my day for sure. Thanks for having me and look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, bud. I'll see you soon on Fast Money. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.